Welcome to Frank Warren's Heavyweight Podcast. I'm Adam Catterall. It is an absolute pleasure to once again be in your company. If this is the first time that you have ever come to this podcast, then please hit subscribe via iTunes or do it uh, via Aircast because the guests week on week have been absolutely stellar. We kicked off with Tyson Fury. We have Piers Morgan talking to us as well, as well as the former Speaker of the House, John Burko. And last time out, Ricky Hatton came to join us for a bit of a chat. So you can tell with the style of guests that we've got, it's not always going to be boxing conversation. So get on there. There's four fantastic guests to have a little bit of a listen back to. This week, we are going to talk to the man himself. That's right, Frank Warren, because I think it's only fair that we give you a little bit of a picture of this man's unbelievable career. From starting out, promoting in the world of fight sports, moving into the world of music, building arenas in London and of course to where we're at at this present day taking us on a trip around the world with Tyson Fury. Um, I understand at this moment that we're all in self-isolation. The coronavirus is keeping us all indoors. So this week's podcast has been recorded me in my basement and Frank in his house. Let's get stuck in. Before we get into the the life story and the trip down memory lane, talk to me about this current situation with coronavirus, right? Because you will have seen everything in the world when it comes to uh, promoting fights and just promotion in general and the things that can get in the way of putting on big events. I bet you've never seen anything like this. No, mate, not since uh, I was younger when they had the plague of locusts, and that's the, that, the, <laughs> the thing that done me. No, it's uh, I, I, this is terrible. I mean, I shouldn't be joking about it. It's a terrible situation, and uh, obviously, it's affecting a lot of people's health and and their livelihoods, and uh, you know, and it's it, it's a, it's a terrible state of affairs. Uh, you know, we've obviously um, cancelled a few shows, and we postponed. Uh, a big show that we had coming up on the 11th of April. We pushed that back to July the 11th between uh, Daniel Dubois and Joe Joyce. But um, we had to do that. You know, we thought it's the best thing to do under the circumstances. Um, it's not an ideal situation, but as I say, compared to what's going on with other people's lives, I think our thing is uh, is quite trivial. Completely agree. Well said. Um, we'll revisit that in a moment, but let's get all the way back to the start of when Frank Warren's a young whippersnapper. Fresh out of school, getting into uh, the world of uh, of fight sports. How did it all begin for you, and where was the fascination? Well, when I, I've always been interested in the fights, and I think when I was younger and uh, and at school, uh, the fight that I remember seeing a recording of because it, it was uh, Muhammad Ali, and it was against Zora Foley. Um, I obviously remember the, uh, the, the you know the Sunny Liston job, but he fought Zora Foley, and he did his. Um, I think it was the first time he'd done his famous Ali Shuffle. And in those days, I was totally enthralled by what I see, you know, Ali being such a, you know, the uh, charismatic character he was, uh, certainly to young people, the young, you know, when I was a kid. And uh, it was just something, you know, something special. I mean, what I, what I sort of know now, I've, I've been involved in boxing and so forth. Obviously, uh, Zora Foley, who was a good fighter, but wasn't the top of his game when he fought Muhammad Ali then. It was a fantastic thing to watch, but the older generation hated him. I mean, they hated him. My dad didn't like him. I, that, that no one, no, none of the older generation liked him. They thought he was an upstart mm. and a big mouth. But I, um, I, from my perspective, I was, um, you know, that, that, that sort of that's the fight that really got me in, interested in boxing. For for people that don't know, then how you get into starting to promote fight sports, take us right back to then to. Uh, to East End London when you started getting involved with it all? Well, I, was in the, I come from North London. I came from Islington. And if you're coming to Islington, that's not the East End. We don't like that, you know. So uh, I, I was... You promoted in the boy. East End, though, haven't you? You've been uh, down there and promoted that. Yeah, we used to go down the East End. You know, we used to use, go down Hackney Road, the pubs down there and so forth. But I come from the Angel in Islington. That's where where I, you know, where I used to hang out when I was a kid in Highbury. But um, I didn't get involved until the 70s. And that was again through another 
relation of mine, second cousin, whose name was Lenny McLean. And if you'd have seen the film Lock, Stock yes. and Smoking Barrels, it was dedicated to him. Well, he was, uh, he was on my Uncle Bob's side, his wife, my Aunt Kathy. He was, he was on her side of the family. And, uh, and we went to see him fight a guy called Roy Pretty Boy Shaw. It's un- called unlicensed boxing in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't un- it was licensed, but it wasn't like it, it was a it was legal, but it wasn't licensed by the British Boxing Board of Control. I mean, this day and age, um, you've got all sorts of things going on. White they call it white color color boxing, blue color, but back then they called it unlicensed boxing. And uh, w- I went to see him in, a, in it was in a nightclub over in South London. It was called Sinatra, spelt with a C. And I watched him. I watched, <laughs> exactly. And I watched him. Uh, and I watched him. Um, and he was a big guy, and he was he was quite a bully when he was younger, and uh, he wasn't really my cup of tea. And uh, but anyway, we went to see him fight, and uh, Bell went. He came out, and he he threw one punch, and he he, he hit Roy Shaw, caught Roy Shaw, and he wobbled him, and he never threw another punch after that. He just went to. The, he just put his two arms up on went up on either side of the ropes on the corner. And just kept pointing to his chin to say that Roy Shaw, sure, go on, then hit me. And he must have hit him about 40 times. And eventually he just slid down the ropes. And that was the end of the fight. And uh, my, my uncle was going off alarming, saying, what is it? You know, what, what on earth are you, you know, what's he doing? And, you know, he was in the dressing room afterwards and he gave him a real bollock. And he said, you know, what, what's the matter with you? Why would you let someone do that to you? And uh, that was that. And uh, it must have been about, probably about maybe five six months later something like that they made a rematch my uncle then took him to a, a british boxing board of control trainer a very famous trainer in those days called freddie hill he used to look after the finnegan brothers but on the night of the fight freddie couldn't get in the corner because he the board of control had taken his license away so i um and and there was talk about if um lenny had gotten beat had been beaten that um there was going to be a problem for him. So don't ask me I like how. the way that you've done that diplomatically. The, well, that's, yeah. I mean, that's what, that's what we said. Remember, I was, you know, I was a bit younger, and well, I was much younger, obviously, and uh, my uncle was uh, sort of quite a well-known bloke, well-known guy in circles, and uh, anyway, cut a long story short, we went up in his corner, and Lenny came out, he clipped Roy Shaw, and he went over, and, and then, the, then the referee counted up, I think it was about 20, yeah, and then the bell went, <laughs> and, then they, and he recovered, and they came out again, and Lenny called him again, and he he, he knocked him over, and that was the end of the fight, and then nothing, nothing was was supposed to happen happened, and uh, that was it. And obviously, since then, it. you've been involved in some of the biggest nights of. British boxers, nights, you know what I mean? We've obviously did the last week's show with Ricky, and it was a great conversation, some of the great nights that he's been involved in, but we've spoke about Naz in the past, Joe Calzaghin, Nigel Benn, Nicky Piper, of course, early doors, Amir Khan. I mean, the list just goes on, and now, obviously, with Tyson. Yeah, they've got all those. You can go back to my my first big name that I got involved with was uh, Joe Bugner. Yeah. I brought him back, Joe Bugner and uh, Colin Jones. He fought for the world title. Uh, Charlie Magrin uh, came and fought for me, fought for the world title. Uh, that was sort of very early 80s. Joe was about 82, something like that. But it was, you know, it was tough back then. I mean, as I say, the cartel had it. You couldn't book the venues because they had exclusive contracts. Yeah. Uh, the border control operated a policy called no shows within four, no major shows within 14 days of each other. So basically, if they had a show at the Albert Hall and one at Wembley, you couldn't run a, whatever a major show was. It was in their rule book. There was no definition of what a major show was. Yeah. And eventually, I had to take you know uh, issue proceedings against them to challenge this. There was no live, no live TV in those days. The TV, the boxing used to be on um, BBC, and they used to run the shows on Tuesday nights. The following night on Sports Night on BBC, they would show the highlights of the fight, and then on the Saturday grandstand, we showed further highlights. And so, you know, I had no television or anything, and uh, I wanted to put some shows to, you know, some big TV shows together. I was working hard to do it, but they, the board refused to allow us permission, so I had to. Um, really go you know fight them on it and it got to a stage where i remember as a, a fighter i saw late a fighter i signed called keith wallace who was a flyweight he's a cracking young fighter and unfortunately he's passed away now but he 
he was on a show. He's going to fight for the European title. And right up until about three o'clock in the afternoon, four o'clock in the afternoon, the board refusing to put officials in. And I was going live TV, doing it live TV on, on, on ITV. And we wound up sitting around the table with the lawyers and it was the days of telexes. We had a phone call next minute. There was all these telexes going backwards and forwards, threatening legal action. And then the board, board relented. And that was the start of live TV. That's the first time we had any live TV. Wow. You've been about a bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, they wouldn't allow in those days, the TV companies wouldn't allow advertising on the ring. So I had to fight to get the advertising uh, on the corner post now, because obviously it was supplementary income, um, ring canvassing, advertising. You know, when I brought when I started bringing the ring card girls in, they were they went ballistic. They didn't like that. Um, but that's what we did. The music I can remember. I remember the first show I did. All the all the guys, Ray Clark, the late Ray Clark, who was the um, general secretary, he was a nice bloke, Ray. I remember just sitting there with his hand over his ears as the music was blaring out. <laughs> People walking into the ring. But it was you know I suppose now everybody say I'm an old fuddy duddy and all that. But it, that's that's how it was then and. Uh, it was good fun. It was good stuff, but it was tough. It was really tough breaking in and breaking that cartel down, which it took me a long while to do because mm. it was it wasn't good for the game, and it isn't good to have one dominant person or company in any any walk of life. You have to have competition. Yeah. Competition's healthy, and it's good for the participants to there be competition because obviously it creates a market. How was modern promoting change compared to how it was back then? It's, look, you know, you've got different ways of, of, of attracting the fans and you do that through whatever methods there are. And obviously, the way people consume product now by the media is done yeah. now through a lot of it's done, obviously, through social media. It's done through electronic media. Um, the way they watch the fights um, in those days, you watch it, you know, as I say, you watched it live with, from, in my, from my point of view. It was on BBC, the other sides, the other people's were on. BBC, you watched it live on, on those those channels, and it was on terrestrial TV, so you're getting big audience. It was nothing unusual for us to get 12, 15, 18 million people. I remember when Barry McGuigan fought on one of their cards, 23 million people watched yeah. it on ITV. Was that the one so at QPR, that, at Loftus Road? Yeah, that wasn't yeah. my show, but that, no. that 20, I think it's 23 million people watched yeah. that. So that was the audience you could get to. But then as things developed and went on. I mean, I can remember, you know, I remember I also used to work with a company called Satellite Express, a guy called Jeff Petz, and we would bring in the fights from overseas and put them on in cinemas in the West End. Mm. So you'd go and watch them at sort of, you know, four or five in the morning, go and watch the, uh, the you know, the, the Ray Leonard fights, the Marvin Hagler fights and so forth. And I can remember going to see Ali, you know, Muhammad Ali fights when I was young in the West End. You'd go and watch them in cinemas. You'd pay up to 20 quid in those days, which was a lot of money, 25 quid for one seat. Mm. So now, then, then what's happened, the pay-per-view came in, that changed the market. You know, you'd watch them live on, 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 on you know, you can watch them live on TV where you're now paying anything between, you know, where it started off being 10 quid up to 25 quid as it is now. Or you know, varying prices depending on what the fight is. So it was much more expensive to watch it then for one person than you could buy it now. And you know, four or five guys or ten guys can sit there and watch it on television, having a few beers. So all that changed. But how you got how you got your products out to the people at the end of the day is you know that's for the promoter to do by the you know the, the various different arms of the media. But you can only do that if you've got something that people want to see mm. and you've got to have a good fight. And at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's not about any of my com competition, Matchroom or back in those days, Duff or whatever. It was about the quality of the fight. And that's where I think UFC have been so brilliant. Mm. UFC have built a product that is UFC. Their brand is UFC. Mm -hmm. And I've and noticed when people say, you know, you're talking to somebody, you know, they say, right, I'm going to see. I'm going to the UFC tonight. They don't yeah. say I'm going to see whoever it is at UFC. Yeah. Whereas if I said I was going to boxing, the first thing you'd say, "Who's who? Are you going to see? Who's on?" Yeah. And yeah. that's the difference between brands, and that's the difference between our sport, which is a traditional old sport. That it doesn't matter which who the promoter is, which way you want to look at it. All you can sell to the public, or you can market the public is the fighter and the mm. fighter's got to be promotable. He's got to be involved in good fights. 
and that's that at the end of the day is what it's about and and there ain't no other way to do this as much as people talk about it the way the way they are at the end of the day the people want to see the fights that's what they pay their tickets for not to see me mm. or any other promoter <laughs> Has there ever been a moment, because it's not all sunshine and rainbows, this game, has there ever been a moment where you've thought to yourself, I've had enough, this, this, this ain't for me anymore? Yeah, it's been a few times. I'm no, I mean, I'm no different than any bloke who goes to work who, or woman who goes to work, something gets up one morning and says, sod this, I'm, I'm fed up with this. Only thing is, um, you know, you can't go, you, you, can't, you can't leave boxing promoter and go work for a boxing promoting this you you run it yourself yeah. it's not like i could be a secretary or a you know a bricklayer or something i go and work for another firm it is what it is and uh of course in many times i mean you know it's you build relationships with people you build relationships with some fighters and you get disappointed when those relationships um fracture i mean we talked about ricky last week and mm. you know we didn't go into it on while well, he's on the brain but the reason our relationship broke up wasn't down to me and ricky it was down to the fact that i was negotiating with his dad and the right message wasn't going back. And the real, uh, you know, and, and I didn't want to embarrass him last week, but that was what the what the problem was. And he knows that and I know that. And we, you know, and when, when eventually when it came out, we became, you know, friendly again because he knew that I, what I did, I always had his best interest and worked very hard for him. Mm. But it's difficult when you're, when you're working, especially in this day and age, you, or, you know, for quite a while now, you're working with fighters who rely a lot on their families. And when money's around, it can be it can destroy families, it can destroy people, and uh, and really, my you know my big thing now is to is to speak to the fighter along with his representative, if possible, because you always worry about what message goes back, and that's where you get disappointed. You think, sod this, I've had enough of this. That can happen. It's all about communication. But yeah, there's been there's been moments, but now, let me tell you something. It's better than better than what I was doing when I started out. You know. I was, you know, well, no, you know, when I I come from Islington, I lived in a council block of flats, Priory Green Estate, just off of um, Pentonville Road. That's where where I, you know, where I grew up, um, and I always lived in that area. I lived in that area too. I was in my twenties, and uh, it was, you know, it was a tough area, and I and I used to hang about with a few tough guys and so forth. And I had a few jobs. I worked down Smithfield Meat Market. I worked for myself for a while. I had. I was involved in the club business. I was involved in um, the machine business when I was very young. I had my own businesses when I was very you know, young. I'm talking about when I was 20, 21, 22 years of age. So doing what? I, doing what? What were you doing? I, I was in. I was in the. Uh, I was in the. Uh, when pool table business came over, I was putting pool tables in the, into uh, pubs and clubs and so forth. I, I I was involved in pubs and clubs. I had a couple of clubs. Um, I had a club with Frank Frank McClintock and I had a club together down in the Barbican. Um, so, you know, we, I was, you know, I, I was very lucky when I was young to be able to do those sort of things. And I had, you know, and I had quite, a, I always, you know, sort of done quite well for myself. So I, I enjoyed that. But ne- when you get involved in boxing, it changes all the sport. I got involved, it changed my whole life. I mean, yeah. you know, I know the people I've met, the places I've been, I could never have dreamt of this. I mean, meeting my heroes, mm. you know, meeting yeah. Muhammad Ali, you know, meeting, I can remember being with, with Muhammad Ali when they came over, brought me over to the UK, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman and Joe Frazier, the three of them, I'm sitting with them. And I had at this moment, I thought, Jesus, I remember watching these when I was a kid, watching <laughs> them fight. This was like, you know, this, this is like a dream come true. You're meeting, you're meeting the guys. And it was, it was a, it was a, you know, I've been very lucky from that perspective, you know, meeting, being invited to Nelson Mandela's house. Um, Jeez, um, you, you never know, when, told me that. When, when did that happen? No, when, when um, Nigel Ben fought, fought um, Sugar Boy Malinga and Sugar Boy Malinga beat him. I was in my office on the Monday. The fight was on the Saturday. I was in my office on the Monday and we got a call come through and they said it's Nelson Mandela's um Second, or you know, representative, and we thought it was a get up. I yeah. thought, yeah, somebody's taking a taking the piss out of us here, <laughs> but it actually was. And I got an invite. And Jeez. the following day, I flew out to, down to, to Joburg. Following day, I'm sitting in Nelson Mandela's house with him. 
in wow. the presence of this great man. I mean, he's, he's one of the most impressive people I've ever met in my life. And I've met a lot of people. I mean, him and Muhammad Ali are probably the two most impressive people I've ever met. But Nelson Mandela had this presence, this aura about him, a very gentle person, big, very tall man. And I remember he had really, he, he, he was suffering a bit of his feet. He had, his, he had quite big feet. And he was, um, we were sitting there and all he wanted to talk about was boxing. It was wow. just, you know, and I thought, you know, I was, this is, you know, just, just within 36 hours, I'm, I'm from, you know, is this a piss take phone call that I'm sitting <laughs> in his house? And it was just amazing, you know, but, I've, you know, I've been lucky like that. You know, I've, I've, I've say you meet, meet people, I've, you know, I've, all over the place. I've, I've, I've been quite fortunate to be able to, to, to mix in those circles. Rick, mm. How did we've spoken about this off microphone previously? But how did that night? You just mentioned Nigel's name there, the and, and the fight with McClellan. You put that fight on, and obviously, yeah, it's you watch that fight. It's an unbelievable fight, but everybody knows what happened afterwards to Gerald. How did that affect you? Well, it was a very you know the fight itself. Everything leading up to the fight was pretty nasty. Yeah, you know it was nasty. It was. I mean, it was sold out. It was at London Arena, which is an arena that I I I, I um, was instrumental in 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 a building in London, twelve thousand seat venue, which uh, you know, and at that time, I owned seventy percent of it, and we and we built we built we built the arena, and when the, and Nigel, Nigel and I had had a really good relationship. Then he went off, and then he came then he came back, and what had happened was he had a he had a a, a, a couple of wins. He got robbed against Eubank mm. in that second fight. I thought he beat Eubank, and then um, anyway, he, he winds up. He's got to fight. He's, he's fight, fighting Gerald McClellan. Gerald McClellan was a weight below him, and came up. Decided to vacate his title and come up. And when you do, when that happens, you go into the number one spot. And he became the mandatory challenger. And he was with Don King, who at that time him and I were working in partnership together. So. Don wanted, obviously, Gerald to win. And I obviously wanted Nigel to win because mm. I'm promoting the majority of my shows in the UK. So I want the British guy to win. And, you know, and obviously, and, and, and I wanted Nigel to win. And Nigel was very difficult. You know, we struggled a bit to um, get him to attend press conferences. And I remember one one day was, you know, he didn't show up and we were in the venue and uh, he had a guy who was, look, who was sort of like the de facto manager called um, Peter De Freitas who came in and he said, Nigel won't come to the press conference. So Don said, give me that. It, he was talking to him. Said, give me the phone. And then he sort of, he had a real go at Nigel down the telephone. I mean, a real, a real, real go at him. And uh, cut a long story short, um, Nigel showed up at the press conference. He said, you know, you here, you got to promote this thing. This is what it's all about. Hmm. And Nigel wouldn't sit, sit next to us at the press conference. He sat at the end of the table. And I thought to myself, what's, you know, what's the matter with him? You know, this, this. Anyway, I was, after the press conference, I said, "You got a problem?" And he said, "So I said, come on, let's go." You know, let's. Anyway, we got to where we was getting quite argumentative, and all the press were looking over. And there was an exit. We went out to the outside on went sort of this fire, you know, um, yeah. staircase fight. You know, so we walked down a couple flights. So we had it out. So what's your problem? And I said, you know, like few F and and few and Fs and Bs were going and so forth. And I said, what is your problem? Why, you know, why on earth are you, you know, why are you behaving like this? You know, I did, and he was ranting and ranting. I said, listen, everything you you we deal through your manager. Everything we tell we 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 um we asked you to do or I've asked you to do. He said, well, I he said, well, I knew nothing about it, and he didn't know about this, and he didn't know about that. And uh, and I see Peter Freight's head appear around the side of the staircase. And then I said, well, you need to sort it out of him. And I pointed anyway, I pointed up at him and he, and then I had to go at the manager. And then, um, he said, uh, Nigel, well, in future you deal with me direct. Anyway, we got it all sorted and got it, you know, got ourselves, this was before the fight and McClellan, he was, I mean, he was, he was really, he was quite moody and, uh, Anyways, it was pretty nice, but then come the fight night, places rammed out. The atmosphere yeah. was unbelievable, and that first round was quite dramatic. Nigel went over the referee; he, he sort of fell out the ring and he was pushed back in the ring. And um, and you know there was there was at the time people thought whether the referee had um, you know should have stopped the fight, but he didn't, and it went on and it became and Nigel 
over the next few rounds got himself into the fight and they were i mean these guys were standing toe to toe i mean like warrior stuff like you never seen and he got so competitive so intense all the journalists were standing up watching it mm. and i remember i remember um hugh mcelvenny late hugh mcelvenny standing on his seat phone in his hand calling you know yeah, calling down the line yeah. of fight ringing it in but as he's doing it they're all in it they're cheering it was like that you never seen anything like it it was just that the atmosphere was amazing and i just noticed for a second that seeing mcclellan when nigel started getting on top of him again i see mcclellan kept you know you blinking he's blinking a few times and he had these two guys working in his corner who i've never heard of one guy had a sailor's cap on and couple other people there and i and i thought i've been around a while i didn't know the guys why and at that time he'd been managed by and trained by emmanuel stewart yeah and they'd had a fallout and um emmanuel obviously didn't work in the corner with him so then as we all know um he got knocked down and uh and and he went into he, 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 he then uh, was in a bad situation and the, the ambulance ambulance service took him mm. away and took mm. him to, to the hospital um and nigel also went down and, and thankfully that night i don't even ask me why do you have a minimum requirement you have a requirement what to put on the, as far as health is concerned for boxers we always used to put doubling so instead of one ambulance we'd have two ambulances we, mm. you know we didn't have to do that but we did thank god mm. and so both of them wound up in hospital and obviously nigel got discharged very quickly whereas uh gerald wound up having a blood clot in his brain yeah and it was in the london hospital so we um don king and i went to the hospital and don don to his credit was very very concerned about him he was very concerned and he kept shaking his head saying you know man this is this is this is terrible and whatever and obviously it was terrible and when we were we were there for stayed overnight phoned the family arranged we arranged to fly the family over and you know, get me to a hotel. Brought his, I think it was his sister, and and I can't remember who the other who the other families were. His sister certainly came with a, another couple of their family, and um, they put him into they 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 operated on him, and then put him into a drug induced coma. And they obviously the reason they do that, like they do with a car crash or any victim or you know has a head injury, yeah. so that you don't move and it gets the brain can heal, and. He was in that. He was in that uh, drug-induced coma, and uh, it was, you know, it was, it was quite, it was awful, especially with the family and that. And and it got very, very, you know, it, you know, the fight, everything about the fight was quite brutal. As I say, it was a brutal fight. And it was all quite, you know, horrible for obvious reasons. And the following day, we were in there, and the guy came in. And I can't remember his name now. The guy that was in the corner, one of the corner, and came in, and he had a cap on, and he said to don king he said mr king i can't do i can't do nothing gerald i'd like to go home so he said but can i get my money so don said well if you want to go you want to go you know how much, how much you've got to get and he came out with something like i don't know if it was five thousand or six thousand dollars and i'm like turn my head around for you're training him for, for that it's a well title fight you know and so he looks at me, he went, yeah, yeah. He said, well, who's the other guy in the corner? He said, oh, he met him at a dog fight about two or three weeks ago. That's a friend, he'd become his friend. So I'm like, dog fight? You know, I knew he kept dogs, but I didn't know about the dog fight. So then the guy went up say, he said, Gerald's a bad person. He said, he's beat me up. He said, um, and this 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 guy who he met, he said he, he, he had a, 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 they call him American pit bull dog, I think it was. Yeah. He said that his dog fought his dog and the other guy's dog beat Gerald's dog. So he got a gun out the, out the glove box of his car and shot the dog and then got another dog out the trunk of the car and they had another fight and they become friends. They were betting. And this fellow winds up in the corner. And I'm like, what is all this about? You know, this is like crazy stuff. Um, but it was true. You know, this is exactly what happened. And anyway, so, Don paid the money, paid him, paid him his money. I assume the next day the guy went off, he flew back. Family coming, and obviously Gerald was in a was in a was was on, in a very very bad way. A book was written, I think it was by um, Kevin Mitchell, who wrote for the uh, yeah. I think it was Guardian or the Observer at the time, and um, he wrote about it. And he and, and he said in the book, and I really took 
and I, remember, I had a massive fallout with King, so I'm not sticking up for him, but he said in that book that Don King stood at the foot of the bed and said, he's a, he's a coward, or he dogged it, or he swallowed it. That it just did not happen. That in that that passage in that book is absolute bullshit. I was there all the time, and you couldn't stand at the bed on the night of that on the night of anything because he was in intensive care. No one was allowed near him. Wow. He, he, he couldn't. You know, you can't. You can't go. And it just like we're all standing in there, and he's in intensive care. Well, you can't even get in there. Mm. It was just absolute rubbish. And I, and I, you know, so a lot of things came about which became like you know you know what's happened sometimes things become yeah like folklore but that didn't happen that did not happen oh, i know it didn't and uh you know then i remember the, then the time that uh, adrian whiteson dr adrian whiteson he was the head um head medical chief medical officer of the boxing board i can remember talking to him he became my doctor and he's and he founded the teenage cancer trust he's a very good man him and his wife and they um you know, he said to me, you know, you don't walk away from the sport. He said, because you walk away, the sport will carry on. He said, but things won't improve. You need to be in there helping to make them improve. And I took that on board and, you know, and, uh, did you have, did you have a thought at that time though, when, when everything was going on with Gerald, did you think to yourself? Well, I, 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 I'd been in the sport for a long time and I'd never had any, you know, nothing. I'd never been involved in any fatalities. There'd been some rare fatalities. And then there were a few and there were, you know, a couple of them were on my show and injuries. And I sort of, you know, and then you started thinking about it, but we did it. We did a lot to change it. You know, we, you know, I, I, I remember back then paying for every boxer to have an MRI scan for a couple of years. You know, I put, I made the funds available to, 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 to do that. And, and funny, no other promoter even offered to contribute, which I found quite alarming. But, you know, we did that because the, the idea was to have this scans so they could monitor the scans and see if there was any deterioration, you know, of the boxer's brain every year. Mm. But you had to start somewhere to, to start from monitoring because no one had one. So we mm. made sure that everybody got one. And that was just, you know, that, that, that helped and, you know, tried to do things and help, help to bring in some legislation. And there was a lot of good, good, you know, brain surgeons, neuro, you know, eminent neurologists who got involved, you know, Peter Hamlin, um, uh, John Sutcliffe, a lot, a lot of these guys got involved and they were very helpful. They weren't against boxing. They were very helpful, very supportive in helping us put measures together, like bringing weigh-ins forward and so forth making sure that boxers, especially the lighter weights, didn't suffer from dehydration. Yeah. Because that was another factor, you know, in boxers. And there was these big gaps in weights in those, you know, you had, you didn't have the junior weight divisions. They yeah. were like, you arrive, you know, you arrive a, you didn't have junior featherweights and junior lightweights and so forth. They were so, you know, with boxers, those were brought in to help the fighters and help them with, you know, make with their weight and more importantly, help with the safety aspects of the sport. And, uh, as a result of that, it helped help boxers who, who who may have may have really suffered in later life through the dehydration. Because at the end of the day, dehydration is the worst thing. Yeah. Because for any boxer, because your brain sits in fluid. So if that fluid is not there, or it's or, or, it, or it diminishes because of your dehydrated, then obviously the brain's not getting the you know is, is, is can get hurt, can get damage. Mm. So. They they were very supportive and helpful, and obviously the border control had to implement, especially after what happened with Michael Watson, yeah. after the um, after the terrible night, uh, terrible injury sustained against uh, when he fought Chris Eubanks, mm. and that was I said that's when we brought the MR, that's when, when when we got involved, and and even when you know when I look at that, I look at you know the health of boxers, I look at the border control in a legal action with Michael Watson who sued them because he didn't feel they showed due care to his welfare. And he was right. There was a, a lot of things were wrong on that night. But why on earth they were fighting him in court and they didn't set, settle the matter with him? I do not know. I mean, the man, you know, he was disabled because of boxing. They're fighting it and they're, they're basically what the their position was. Well, you knew the dangers going into the sport. Well, that's not quite right. You know, you have a, you have a duty of care. And... I, I was really alarmed at what was going on, and the board of control went into administration rather than pay him. Mm. You know, they said they're not going to pay it, but they'd spent over a million pounds on legal fees. They could have given him the million quid. Yeah. And 
in, in, to stop the action, um, Al Hamilton, who is a respected um, black journalist from the from the community, him and I got together, and we decided and, and and we said let's try and settle this. So we got all the parties together, sat down with them, and said, right, you got, you know you're gonna have to pay Michael this. They said they could only pay him X amount. I put some money to it and I said, look, we'll do a fundraiser for you and I'll underwrite it in those days for a quarter of a million quid. Whatever you got, you got a quarter of a million quid. Hopefully we'll get more. And we did the fundraiser and raised him some money to help him and his family um, deal with, you know, deal with, with deal with his, you know, his disability mm-hmm. and help him try and make it more comfortable. And I never promoted him, by the way. I never promoted him. And Michael, well, I just couldn't understand why the sport had, treated, had done what they'd done and treated him like that. Do you ever switch off from boxing? It must be quite difficult because all all your boys are involved, aren't they? The family's involved. It's a family business now. When you go home, yeah, yeah. Can I you switch off that. or not? Not really, because you you know you're dealing with different time zones, so your phone's always ringing, yeah. and there's you're always you're always got to be be available, and that that happens. And you know, but I do. You know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't live and breathe it. I, no, you I go to the Arsenal life. every now and again, but you know what I mean. I go to the Arsenal. Actually, I, go, I, I, I like the boxing to get me away from the pain of Arsenal. <laughs> and then I, um, lately that is anyway. Yeah. And uh, I, um, no, no, I, I like go, I go to a lot of uh, concerts. I, I, I like my music and uh, theatre now and then. I read a lot and I listen to a lot of music. So yeah, I'm quite I quite like it. And I, you know, and I like and I and I like. Um, occasionally dining out having a glass of wine absolutely was it I mean um, I doubt this was your plan but it was all was it always on the cards when they were growing up that the lads would get involved in the business or did you think no. that they might take different paths didn't even didn't even didn't even contemplate it didn't think about it they all went to university and I thought they was all going to go off and do different things um, but they all gravitated towards it and obviously the influence of i did you gotta remember they were kids they weren't i wasn't there on a saturday night i didn't realize that they were so into it yeah i just didn't realize that so they're watching the, the shows and and whatever and uh obviously um they're, they're they've been bitten by the bug like i got bitten by the bug how long did you go on for um well if i can dodge this virus as long as i can <laughs> You, you, that that's the thing about you. From speaking to you, there is no plan in your head of, uh, for example, one day handing it over to one of the lads or anything. It is purely in your blood, and this is this is you forever. Yeah, well, I don't. You know, I might. I know I look old, but I don't feel old. Well, you know, no. I've not got an old old outlook, and I, you know, and I still think I can do certain things, and I'll get, I'll get certain enjoyment, and I certainly, and I enjoy. I enjoy when we get, you know, young talent. I really enjoy that and being involved in help developing their careers and getting them into a position where they can go off and, you know, hopefully secure their financial future and their family's financial future, and they'll also be healthy and know where them and 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 be able to enjoy the the the, the fruits of their success. So I, I quite enjoy that side of it. Mm. As well as the events, I mean, come come. There's nothing. There is nothing like boxing at its best. You know, sitting there and watching two guys of equal talent against each other. There's no sport like it. You know, if you're a te- two tennis players play against each other, one of them gets beat. They'll play again next Saturday in another tournament. If you know, if uh, golfer golfers, they'll be on to the next tournament and so forth. Boxing, it has the, it's got the most dramatic effects on the loser's career. Mm. You know, you one minute you're there, then you're not. You know, you you you, you if you're undefeated, you you perceive as this, you know, this gladiator who's uh, you know, who's 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 the man and you know, he has this this persona of, you know, of of, of a victor. But if he loses that, you know, it can it can change change his whole outlook. It's 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 it's, it's amazing, especially when you see guys who've been in that position, they get beat. And that's when you find out where the, who the real man is, you know, the ones who can come back from that. Do you have a career high at this moment that you look back on and go, that's the moment? Or do do a lot of them all fall into one big pot? I think a bit of a pot. I can pick certain fights. I can pick other things that I've done, you know, like London Arena, you know, 
building London Arena, you know, we 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 didn't have a venue, so we built a venue. You know, we you know twelve thousand seat venue in London. It's the biggest. It was the biggest indoor arena, purpose built arena for for events like that, in 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 London at the time, and uh, it was. Uh, it was it was brilliant to be involved in that to to put the acts on that we brought to what we brought there you know promoting Frank Sinatra there, bringing bringing Sinatra in and becoming quite friendly with him um, over a period of time. Uh, you know Pavarotti played there, Pink Floyd, you name it, everybody played there. I mean it was it was it was an amazing time doing that, uh, as well as putting the fights on there. Starting Box Nation, you know when we left Sky TV, you know got. I mentioned on the podcast last week, you know, leaving there and starting Box Nation. Yeah, that was a big, big jump. That was to do that, and that 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 was so tough. And it's it was really, really tough environment. But you know, we knuckled down and moved forward. And you don't seem and, to be and, averse and to risk, Frank. Every time I speak to you, there's always at certain points, like you've just mentioned, they're building an arena. Then from the the dismantling of your relationship with Sky to then rather than look for another broadcaster to go, well, sack it, I'll build my own. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, 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 you've never been averse uh, to risk I, along the, the path. No, I, I, I you know, I've, I, 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 in some ways I'm not, but you know, th- we're in a risk business, aren't we? That's mm. what it is. You know, there's no, there's, there's no uh, safety net as a, if you're a promoter, there's zero safety net. You put your money up, you're either going to lose money or you're going to make money. That's it. There's no, organization you don't get anything from the boxing board of control it's not like you know the football clubs or yeah. tennis they get they got their money and they make money and and, and it filled us down with us we put our money up we just put it up we take the risk and that's the financial risk that is i mean the boxers take the risk in the ring obviously but we we take the financial risk and it and it is what it is but I started off you know my you know my family were that were in the in the betting business book but as i mentioned earlier mm. you know my uncle Uncle Bob and, and his partner at the time was a guy called Albert Dimes. They had um, they had um, spielers. Uh, they they were bookmakers. They were course bookmakers. And I and when I was a kid, I used to go with my dad and my uncle. I used to go and work at the races at a very young age. So I've always I always liked to bet. I always was a bit of a punter <laughs> as well as a bookmaker. And so that that's how it was. But I I I, I was always pretty much. If I wanted to do something, I could sort of put the blinkers on and be focused, and and I could make it happen. If you know what I mean, I could. I always seem to make make. If I wanted to do it, it it would most of the time happen. Mm. Has there been a career low? Yeah, I've had a few career lows. You know, I mean, that's look. If you don't get any lows, you don't get any highs, do you? Yeah, it's all, that's the only way you appreciate a good time. Yeah, but I've had me ups and downs. I've had, you know, when the arena went. The arena went bust. That was when we had the um, terrible recession back in uh, back in the the nineties. When or well, eighty nine ninety Black Friday, I remember the the interest rate went to fourteen percent, and we were paying um, like four four percent over base. Hmm. So it was a killer. But we delivered. We delivered on all of our. Um, all, all the events that we said we'd put on, we, we got them together, we put them on, but there was a problem. And I, I, at that time, I'd negotiated with um, a group of banks who were going to take equity in, in the arena. We'd still had control and interest, but they were going to take equity. And 10 days before, we'd agreed on it, 10 days before we were all getting together because a couple had to come in from abroad to sign off on it, I'd got shot. Yeah. And that killed it. And that was that. Was it. So that was a bit of a low. Um, <laughs> I like the way that you but, just flipped over. Like, yeah, that were a bit of a low. You know what I mean? I lost the yeah, building and then I got back, shot. Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we carried we carried on. We carried on a bit. Even I discharged myself from hospital and went back to work. I was. I, I think I'd lost about four stone in a very, very short space of time. I remember referring it to as the lead pan diet, but it you know it works. And uh, you know we 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 went back to work for a while, but you know we never recovered from that. It was tough. Talk to me about that moment you just brought up the shooting that must have been incredibly scary well it's 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 scary afterwards isn't it? it's not at the time because it just happened yeah so you don't think about you know i thought it was a joke to start with someone was some loony lunatic and um and they were shaking I remember, all i remember they were shaking and i thought i really genuinely thought it was a joke and i had a bang and they missed because I thought, I thought it was i genuinely thought it was a joke because i got out of my car and then then suddenly 
there's another bang and and, it, and I thought it's my side, but it went went through my chest because I was at a, an angle. Otherwise, it had probably gone through my heart because I was an angle. It went went out and come out the side of my chest and smashed them ribs and came out and went into my arm. And um, all I remember then, I had a still a good friend of mine, a guy called John Buttress. He was a, he was a solicitor, become a barrister. Uh, he was a double first at Trinity College. It's a very bright man. And uh, all I can remember him saying, what the fuck are you doing? And then he jumped on him. Wow. He, ju- he jumped on him. Very brave. He jumped on him and <laughs> run off. And that was it. Next minute I was, uh, and it's funny, you, you know, <laughs> the, the ambulances were on strike. So they put me in the back of a, uh, the old paddy wagon. So they threw me in the back of there and the, the, they, to get me to the hospital. And they, they was doing a three-point turn, banging up the curb. <laughs> and every time it went up the curb, I remember, oh, I should slow down. <laughs> was, I was in pain, but they got me to the hospital, and that was that. And uh, and, it, and it's a funny thing. An eyewitness said said he remembers everything. He remembers seeing me get shot and the ambulance taking me away. So he was a good eyewitness. That's that 1989 is like you've just said. You brought up that particular thing with the with the arena. You've just brought up the shooting. That's probably the lowest point of, of everything that's happened? Yeah. I mean, as from a professional point of view, yeah, it's, you know, this bit ups and downs. I mean, I, I had my, I had my, my, uh, my action with Don King when we fell out, that was quite a, quite a, um, that, that was a, a really annoying time, uh, you know, in as much that what, how it came about and what happened was, um, was awful. I mean, you know, he, 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 he we got into a legal dispute it wound up in court, and the judge just judge it. You know, judge this judge. His name was Gavin Lightman, Justice Lightman, and he did not like me for whatever reason. Um, and we, no one gave evidence. It never even got to the stage where ed, evidence was changed. And all he kept doing was putting. He, he froze my assets. He kept putting orders on. I'd get a call. I'd, as our offices at that time were in Hertford, Hertfordshire, I'd get a phone call saying you got to be in court at two o'clock. This was like eleven o'clock or. 12 o'clock we had to get in half a minute and i got and they allowed allowed me to allowed me two thousand pounds a week to run my business pay for um everything that's all they would allow two thousand pounds i mean didn't pay the the nowhere near the wages and the and and, and, and the expenses and and obviously you know my own personal expenses so it was it was ridiculous and um it went on and i then got a barrister on board it was, uh, I mean, he, he was. The, the, his name was Jonathan Simpson. He's now a judge, and he was known as the cleverest man in Britain. And he was my barrister, and they, and, and he was a very calm and very articulate man. He's written some, written some, some quite some interesting books, and he had a big argument with a judge. There was a big argument. It was quite. This was all prior to the. To, to the hearing take you know the the, the listing of the, the event this was this was all the preliminaries and he had a big row with a judge and then it, we came out and he said to me this judge is not going to you're not going to win this he said there's four points he said you might win two and he might win two he said but you're not going to win it he said when we go to appeal you'll win everything so he said you've got to make a decision and i was like really taken aback by that and i thought to myself I've got to have my assets frozen for, an, if we, you know, if it goes to appeal, that's another year to eighteen months. My assets are frozen. How on earth are we going to survive? We can't do it. So I did a deal. So the deal I did because everybody thinks that we lost the, the action in court. That did not happen. So we did. I did a deal with King, and I think in those days it was about twelve million dollars. But as we were partners and fifty percent in everything, I. You know, I paid that sum over, but we got back every one of our contracts, like Naz, yeah, uh, you know, Ricky, um, Joe Kalzaki, all of them, all the so he was no longer involved with that. So basically, I bought back the contracts, yeah, and that's what it was. And it was, it was, and it was really out of order. And and, and Don, um, and I, I was never the same with him. Obviously, after that, I didn't like, I didn't like what he, what had happened. I didn't like the way he went about it. I didn't, and he knows what I'm talking about when I'm saying this. And so it was never the same. And this is the guy that asked me when he was in real trouble, and he was in a lot of trouble, and he looked like he was gonna. He looks like he was gonna go away. 
um, in the States. He got arrested in the States for whatever it was was all about. And he asked me to run the business. He wanted me to go to the States and like head up the business over there, wow. which um, I said I, weren't, I didn't want to do. I didn't want to do that. I had no interest in that. And uh, that, anyway, that's, that, that was what happened. So yeah, that was a tough time. But, you know, like I say, you live to fight another day. That was what I had to do. I had to make a decision. Am I going to live to fight another day? So I had to make a commercial decision. And I made the commercial decision. And Jay, the late Joey Larkin, who was the pres, vice president of um, uh, 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 um, Showtime Television in the States, mm. they showed all the King's shows. And King had the exclusive. He said to me, and he knew what happened. He said, I promise you, I promise you, you we will make this up to you. This what's they knew what had gone on, mm. and within a very short space of time, King's contract ended, and I had a I had stacks of dates out of them. Yeah, the short which more than, more 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 than compensated for what I had to pay King, and I mean stacks of dates. Um, King was really pissed off. They were coming here, they were broadcasting my shows live. It was, it was unheard of back mm. then. You know, it just didn't happen. They was coming over here, and then. Uh, when all the Tyson stuff, when Tyson come out of prison and he'd fallen out with King, they were instrumental in putting that together with me to get to do, you know, to get that on. So out of all of it, you know, as I believe what goes around comes around, we more than got the 12 mil back, mm-hmm. more than got it back, and and that was it. Then you made the right decision and, to and, carry and on. The, and, I was indi- and I was independent, and, I, and the fighters were, were with me. Yeah. And, they were, and they were really good times, I mean, excellent times. They were good times and we're on the cusp of some even better times maybe right now because you've just signed Daniel Dubois for an extension on his contract. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. we've just been out in Vegas with Tyson Fury. There's so yeah. many exciting times to look ahead of. I know that we're living in a weird time at the moment with coronavirus, but once all this goes away and we're given the old clear and we can start putting shows on again, the fans are in for some big nights, aren't they? There are. We got, you know, we've got some exciting talent, some real good youngsters, and they're as good as you know, as good as any of the best fighters that I was involved with. You know, I'm I'm looking at some of these these youngsters, and I really do believe they're going to go on and become, you know, iconic British boxers in the, on the world scene. I think they'll they'll go on and win world titles, and I'm you know I'm sort of very enthusiastic about that. So you know, it's 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 hopefully it's onwards and upwards, and uh, once we get once this this all settles down over here with this virus, hopefully they they get the you know get on top of it and the vaccine comes out and we can get back to you know get back to hopefully normality and people can get their jobs back and then maybe they got some spare cash buy 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 tickets to come and see these fellas it'll all be good for the future thank you very much for your company i've enjoyed it frank listening to uh, that tale we were obviously going to do that episode a little later on in the series but obviously with everything with coronavirus at this moment we just brought it forward because uh, our guests and what have you their safety was paramount to us so hopefully next yeah. week we'll be able to bring somebody in uh, from your phone but once again preferably not another Arsenal fan but you know what I mean we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll get somebody on so we we'll get a little will. bit of a chip top man Frank super stuff don't forget to subscribe to the podcast you could do that via iTunes or you could do it via the ACAST website make sure you write and send us a little review as well which helps us in the iTunes Uh, charts so more people can come across and listen to these fabulous tales of all these people that we're speaking to on a week by week basis we'll catch you next time 